Hello, Orange Evangelical Church. It is great to be among you again, even in this strange kind of way. And such a privilege to be opening God's Word with you as part of this series on Jesus' farewell discourse. The next few weeks are going to be packed full for you folks as you listen in on this last night of Jesus with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And such huge themes in these chapters. And that's no different tonight. There are three big themes in the passage we're looking at today. Two of them we've already examined over the past couple of weeks, and they both have to do with the cross. Now, the first one, which we touched on two weeks ago, is about glory. Take a look at verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Now, those of you who were around a couple of weeks ago, you'll already know what's going on here in this strange statement about glory. God the Father is glorified by the Son, and in turn, he will glorify the Son. But how and, and when? Well, the answer is at the cross. In John's Gospel, the great moment when God shows his glory, when God is glorified, is at the cross. Because at the cross, God shows us who he truly is and what he is really like. God shows his maximum glory as he gives the life of his son for the sake of sinners. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this, friends, is glory. Not in the exercise of power, but in giving up power and humility out of love for the sake of others. This is the true glory of God. And as Jesus contemplates his death, he reflects on this glory. But there's another theme in this section, one which we've touched on last week that comes out of this. If the glory of God is in humbly serving others, then the same thing applies to those who follow him. Take a look at verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. What marks out the people of glory, the people of God? Well, the same glorious love, the same self-sacrificial commitment for the good of the other. How will the world know God? As the people who speak the word of God live the life of God. They show the glory of God in their own deeds. And throughout human history, this has been the mark of the true church, that it has shown the love of God, even as it has proclaimed the word of God. And this same call that Jesus gives to his disciples, it echoes in our ears today. We know this already, because this was one of the big themes last week, as Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and called on them both to be washed by him and to wash each other's feet, to serve one another out of love and self-sacrificially. The church is the community of love. And this, more than anything else, shines the light of the glory of God into a dark world. These are two of the themes of our passage today. But in a sense, they're minor themes. They're themes tacked onto the end of the major element of our passage. A conversation about betrayal. Now, I think as readers of the Bible, we're not very worked up about Judas and his betrayal of Jesus. After all, we're used to it. 
And so we expect it to happen. We know it's coming. Maybe we even see it as necessary because it helps get Jesus to the cross, which is the big deal in this gospel. But for the disciples, this was shattering for them. So much so that every single gospel, when it names the disciples, names Judas as the betrayer, just so we know right from the very beginning who he is and what he did and what he did to them. And John in particular goes out of his way to make this point. In chapter 6, John highlights that Jesus knew all along who would betray him, getting his kicks in early. And in chapter 12, again, he draws attention to Judas as the betrayer. And then in the first half of this chapter, John three times in verse 2 and verses 10 and 11 and verse 18 brings up Judas' betrayal. The betrayal of Judas is no small thing for John. It is a huge thing for him. And you see it here when things come to a head, when Jesus finally comes out and openly says it. One of them, one of this select group, one of the men who has followed him around for years is going to betray him. And the disciples are shocked and genuinely confused. Who could it be? And the fact that they don't know is interesting in itself. Because we know. But this is, the, this is the thing, isn't it? We often don't know in the moment. We don't know what people are capable of until they do the unthinkable. A combination perhaps of our own naivety and ignorance of the darkness in our own hearts. We're all caught by surprise like the disciples were here. And this leads to one of the more comical moments in a serious evening. Take a look at verse 22. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm imagining the classic family Christmas and the kids want to get access to the lollies Grandma has stashed. But this requires delicacy and tact. So they get Grandma's favourite to go and ask her, because that's more likely to get the desired outcome. It's more likely to get them what they want. And right here, Peter nods at the disciple Jesus loved, kind of like, come on, you, know, you ask him. And so he casually leans across and asks, Lord, who is it? It just shows you we never really grow up. And after this, everything happens, well, rather quickly. Instead of telling them, Jesus says, well, it's the one I'll give the bread to. And then he gives the bread to Jesus and Judas and says, what you're about to do, do quickly. But strangely, no one understands what he means. And when Judas leaves, they assume another different reason. Why don't they all now know it's Judas? What's going on here? Well, it's possible that the answer he gave to the beloved disciple was given just to him. And no one else heard it, which is why we only hear this account from the witness in John's gospel, because he's the only one who heard it and who could join the dots later on. Why didn't he pass it on to the others? Well, we don't really know. We can only speculate. But it has this dramatic effect in the chapter that we again see something about the big picture that the disciples are unaware of in the moment and only understand later on and interpret later on. So Judas departs under the influence of Satan to do his dark deed. And the night goes on without him. But we need to ask a question after going through this. Why is this episode here? Why does John include this little episode? 
Why draw attention to it in the way that he does? There's nothing here that really affects the betrayal one way or another. Nothing necessary for the plot. We already know that Judas is going to betray Jesus from verse 2 and from earlier in the book. This passage contains no new information. It just seems to get in the way of the real reason for the night, that Jesus' last words to his disciples. Judas could simply have left. So why is this here? Well, I can think of four reasons, I think, why it might be here. First, because it could have been anyone. It just happened to be Judas. We spend this time here because despite what we already know as readers of the story from the outside, this is the big moment of Revelation. Up until this point, no one has any idea. No one knows. In fact, Judas is just like the rest at first glance. Like the rest, he's faithfully followed Jesus around Palestine for the past couple of years. And when the crowds all left Jesus in chapter 6, like the other 11, he stayed. He too saw Jesus as the one with the words of eternal life. When the disciples thought they were going to their death with Jesus in chapter 11, but still went with him anyway, Judas went too. He was just as devoted as the others. No one looked at Jesus and immediately knew, oh, this is the one who's going to betray him. Just look at him. No one reacted like that. No one thought that. No, it could have been any one of the 12. It just happened to be him. Second reason I think it's here is this passage is here because it's part of a larger picture that John builds of Judas' character that helps to suggest his motive. So take a look again at the episode in chapter 12. At the start of the chapter, Jesus has his feet anointed with very expensive perfume and Judas responds in chapter 12 verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Now, do you notice uh, what John does there? He reveals something about Judas, and in particular about his character. That Judas was the one put in charge of the money bag. And this seems to have been the money the band of travellers used to get food when they needed it or accommodation when they needed it. But Judas was stealing from the bag. Now, we don't know whether Judas was already and always a greedy thief and so he put himself in the position of being in charge of the money so he could steal it, or if being put in charge of the money was just too big a temptation for him and he gave into it and stole but it reveals his character either way. And it helps explain his motive for betraying Jesus. That the desire for money overwhelmed him. So he went to the Jewish leaders looking for payment for his betrayal. Judas didn't betray Jesus for idealistic reasons. He didn't betray Jesus because he was scared. He didn't betray Jesus because he thought Jesus was a false messiah who was leading people astray. Judas betrayed Jesus because he was greedy. And this is very revealing. Because thirdly, the third reason I think this is here, this episode shows us the heart of false discipleship and the danger it poses. How many times is the link made for us between false teachers and greed? 
Jesus points this out. The Pharisees and Jewish leaders are seen as greedy men seeking power for themselves. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth, and here it is, and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. False teachers and greed. Do you see the mark of the false teacher? They are using the trappings of the faith to seek money for themselves. And Paul tells Timothy to avoid people like this, to oppose people like this. And he says it again to Titus. In Titus chapter 1, he says exactly the same kind of thing. Look at what he says. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. The false teachers that are infecting the church and polluting the faith, even in these early days of the church, have money and greed at the heart of their betrayal. They betray the gospel because they love money. Peter and Jude also warn about false teachers and greed. And when Paul and Peter talk about the character needed for leaders in the church, near the top of the list is that they are not greedy for money. What Judas shows us is what we see throughout the rest of the Bible, that at the heart of those who betray the Lord Jesus and his gospel is the desire for personal gain, and in particular, the desire for money. And this is something that sadly we still see even 2,000 years later. At the heart of so many who lead Jesus' sheep astray is the love of money and the desire for dishonest gain. But again, this highlights, I think, my fourth and final reason that John's included this passage here. Because it warns us of the darkness in our own hearts and how easy it is for us to turn away as well. Here are just two of the many verses that warn Christians against greed. And notice what greed's aligned with. It's aligned with idolatry, false worship, denying the true God and worshipping a false God. As Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And that is just as true of us today as it was of Judas 2,000 years ago, perhaps even more so. We live in a culture that is the richest culture in the history of the world. A poor person in Australia is richer than almost everyone who has ever lived in the history of the world. We have lives of such wealth and comfort that we don't even realise just how pervasive and dangerous it is for us. I often say to my students that if you walk away from Jesus in the next 10 years, it most likely won't be because of sex or work. It will most likely be because of money and of greed. And this description of Judas is left in here, not primarily so we'll see the evil in others or be able to identify false teachers. It is here primarily so we will be able to look as if in a mirror and see ourselves. What's the difference between me and Judas? What's the difference between you and Judas? 
It's a good question, isn't it? What separates us? John tells us about Judas because he wants to warn us. By showing us what can happen if you don't put this evil to death. By showing us how easy it is to be standing right in front of Jesus. Seeing him as he really is. And yet to turn away. Because we've come to love something else more. Judas is a warning to us. Not because he's so different or unusual. But because he's so normal. Judas walks around our corner and he walks around our churches every day. He's there with us when we make decisions about what we spend and what we don't spend, what we give and what we withhold. And the story here is written down as a vital warning to us. Don't be Judas. Don't let money wreck your faith. It is so easy for that to happen. Be on the lookout for greed in your life and put it to death. Don't kid yourself that you couldn't be Judas too. Just like he could have been any one of the twelve, he could be any one of us too. Don't be the one who eats the bread of Jesus and then leaves him. Don't be the one who takes his gift and then throws it away for something shiny. Cling to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story of Judas. Not for the awfulness of his betrayal uh, and the horror of what he does, not for the impact upon his friends or even the story of the gospel, but because of the warning it is to us that any one of us could be him, that any of us could take hold of Christ and then spurn him again, that we too could be tempted by the love of shiny things, by the love of money, by the desire for gain, and walk away from him. Father, help us to see Judas as that kind of warning. And we thank you for the glory of Christ, who even though he knew this betrayal, even though he knew what Judas was to do, he told him to go and do it quickly because he was set on the cross. He was set on the path that took him there to that great moment of glory. And so we pray that rather than spurning Jesus, we would be the ones who showed the love of Jesus towards each other and towards our world. Amen.